first thing I want to know, does everyone in the world call you Tony or is there like a, a TL or an AL, anything like that? Uh, I don't quite know what you mean. Well, for example, Paul McCartney's real name is not Paul. It's James Paul McCartney. Oh, but, I didn't know that. My oh, name's my name's Tony. Anthony is my full name, but my but mother called me Anthony. Nobody. But you'll said. find uh, sometimes notable musicians. Everyone in the crew has a different name from them, so they don't call them the name that necessarily the fans or the listeners do. So I didn't know if there was a secret. Oh no, I'm Anthony to everybody, but on stage I'm Tony. Well, unfortunately, to me, unfortunately, in this tour, Robert Fripp, who does our our set list each night. Maybe you know this if you've seen my website, uh, uh, my web diary. Uh, Robert Fripp one night wrote as a piece, Tony Cadenza, meaning that I would improvise whatever I wanted. Sure. And I knew as soon as I saw it in writing that everybody's going to start joking about the uh, supposed New Jersey Italian rest pizza owner, pizza shop, pizzeria owner, uh, Tony Cadenza. And indeed that happened. So I have the the pleasure of being right, but I have the displeasure of being kind of convoluted with Tony Cadenza. Sure. Well, another big tour for you guys. Uh, it would be, you know, seven or eight years in a row had it not been for COVID. So it's great yeah. how productive that, that King Crimson has been as a band. Something that amuses me is I don't know of a band that's gone from arena to theater to arena to theater to arena more than King Crimson. Do you like playing in bigger venues? Does it matter to you for your performance? That's a very good question. And we played plenty of clubs along the way also. Uh, uh, yeah, usually once, once you get up to arenas, you don't go back, but we did go back and that's fine. I don't really have a preference. Uh, it's about the music. I think most musicians I work with, it's that way. Some of the best, most fun things I do are in clubs. You're making less uh, gross money, of course, in a club, but, but you're there for the music. And uh, some sometimes arenas have really bad sound and that's, but that detracts from the fun of it. Uh, this time we're playing a lot of outdoor shows and that, that can't be beat. People can be spaced and feel safe and, and we can have not that reverberating uh, arena sound that, that can be pretty awful, for, especially if you happen to play busy music, which of course we do. Yeah, when you were putting together this tour, did you guys know from the beginning that the Zappa band would be opening? Or in other words, was it a pre conceived co-headlining-ish kind of tour or is it we're going to play great venues hey zappas do you want to do it uh I, i'm not i must admit i'm not involved in the management agency stuff but i think that going back to last november december that was the plan to ask them to tour maybe even before that was to ask them to open with up for us and for the opening segment of the tour, sorry for the first leg of the tour we had another opening act my friends my good friends the california guitar trio a very different kind of band and wonderful progressive but playing acoustic guitars and playing a, an amazing assortment of music and some shows we had both we had two uh, three acts on the bill so that's all been fun but this this uh tour leg coming up it's the zappa band and i've heard them nightly they're wonderful and really a challenge uh, <clears throat> for me as a bass player to hear the amazing bass playing going on there and, and yeah. great fun. So it's a good, it's a good duo act and we're happy to have them. Anytime you have a big tour like this, there's all sorts of backup plans and insurance policies because the go end game is let's get this big show happening. Yeah. A lot of bands, you find that the guitar tech, the drum tech, they can play every song <laughs> easily. In fact, there may be better players than the people who are on stage. 
how are the King Crimson texts? Could any of them actually fill in on a moment's notice if needed? Uh, I, I actually don't know. Like most bands don't know because we're not there when they're playing our instruments. When we show up, they hand the, hopefully they hand us the instruments. I have heard of things like that, but probably not in progressive rock bands where, the, where they're very technical. And uh, indeed, my Michele, my Michele Russotto, uh, my Italian bass tech for many, many years, probably could play a lot of the parts. He certainly tunes the basses and the stick, which is not easy to tune. He tunes them perfectly, but I haven't actually asked him. And, and I, don't, I think it would be a rare... I think some of the guitar techs do play guitar, and I haven't heard them noodling and playing the King Crimson pieces. Possibly they could. Got it. You mentioned the stick, the almighty Chapman stick. Yeah. When did you first pick that up? And who was the first Chapman stick player you were aware of? Well, I heard about it in 1976 when, when Emma Chapman came out with it. Maybe he had advertised it a little bit in the year before, but I only heard about it in 76 and I got it right away because uh, at that time I played the bass sometimes with a tapping technique, which is the technique you use on the stick. And so I thought, well, this would be an interesting way to kind of look at my bass playing in a different way. So I got it, and I know the year because I brought it to Peter Gabriel's first solo album, Sessions, which was in July 76. He had just left Genesis, and I know that date, so that's how I know, because I remember opening the stick and the producer seeing it and saying, put that thing away, I don't even want to see it, let alone hear it. Uh, and it was very gratifying many years later when the same producer uh, hired me for some sessions and asked me to particularly uh, be sure to bring the stick and play it. Uh, it's an interesting, fascinating instrument, uh, with a different technique, but also as a bass player, I find it has a different attack. Of course, it's hammer-on, so uh, that gives me, and, and it also has different tuning, and those two things give me different options to approach the music, which in progressive music, you, you, you kind of want to, I kind of want to approach it differently than I have before. So the tools that are different kind of tools uh, help my brain to, to look at the same old piece in a different way. So it's been very useful through the years, and most especially with King Crimson and Peter Gabriel. It sounds like it keeps you from getting bored of the bass when you have an instrument that helps you refine technique that you can switch back and forth with. That's an interesting way to look at it. I wouldn't use those words, but, but, but some, something like that. I don't actually get bored. I'm always challenged playing the bass, even playing simple parts. And I do, you're looking at my home studio here. I do a lot of recording on, on simple records and I, I'm challenged by that. And I try and do it really as musically well as I can and as technically well, but, uh, uh, just the, the, having your, how shall I put it? The, I don't often get to put it this way, but having your fingers on the same four or five strings for 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years, uh, after a while, it, it's, it's pretty hard to make them do things that they haven't done. So just the fact of putting the strings backwards and tuning them in fifths instead of fourths, which the stick has, makes you uh, reimagine the part or, or makes you think the part helps me to think the part in my brain and then find a way to play it on the instrument instead of letting my fingers do the same old, same old. Something else that's super impressive to me about your career, besides the success, besides how skilled you are, besides nobody really has negative things to say about Tony Levin, besides all that, it's how you've been able to juggle all these different projects over the years. You know, Peter Gabriel's gig, King Crimson, you've been in and out of a few times. You've done all sorts of session work and guest trios, all that kind of stuff. How does that work with scheduling? Do you kind of have this calendar and you go, hey, everyone, not available then? 
or have you been kind of lucky where you've been available when you needed to be over the years? Um, good, very good question. I've been lucky and I've been unlucky. Both the things that you've heard me play, I was lucky. The, the great thing that I never got to do, I was unlucky. It's the same, not just in music, but any freelance person, the person who delivers your firewood or something, or, or the plumber uh, gets busy and has to turn down maybe some good jobs if they're conscientious. Unconscientious people will take it all and, and kind of shuffle and try and wangle a way to do it all. I don't do that if I commit myself to a session or or a tour, I'll do it. So hence, when, when the Pink Floyd tour that I was offered overlapped by a, a couple of weeks with the Peter Gabriel tour, uh, I, I felt much as I would have liked to do the Pink Floyd tour, I'm going to stick with Peter. I'm not going to, after all these years, say, hey, I can't make the last couple of weeks of the tour. So th that's one where I wasn't too lucky, but generally, uh, well, it varies a lot. But uh, um, on the whole, I've been lucky. And these last few years, maybe 10 years or 20 years, there's a little less touring than there used to be in the 80s and 90s, we just went out solid. The King Crimson tours would be six or eight months instead of six or eight weeks per tour leg. And so it was harder then to, it was easier to fill in the time, but harder to get them to coincide. And I was very lucky early in the 80s that Peter Gabriel's management and King Crimson's management, when I told them about this new thing called email in the early 80s, that they were happy to be in touch with each other and work out their tours so I could do both. The best example or comparable example I can think of is the way that you've been with Peter Gabriel and King Crimson is like how Eric Singer was drumming for both Alice Cooper and Kiss. And they kind of had to go, oh, Alice is going on a tour. Kiss can't book a tour and vice versa. Yeah. I can't think of two examples besides you and him that that's the case. with, But I'm sure you can in your decades of, you know, being cool with all the other side people. Yeah, well, you're very kind to, to think of that. I, I actually don't think about that too much. I think we're all, you know, we're happy when we're lucky and when it works out, we can't do something good, especially some albums that are just a, a, a few days of great stuff, but they came in at the last minute and we had bookings. Uh, we're sad to miss those. Well, a friend of mine who's originally from Rochester, he's in a band called Longwave. They did a couple of albums on RCA. They're still doing it. I know you have some Rochester roots. I said, yeah. hey, I'm going to be speaking to Tony Leff. And he goes, oh, yeah, Steve Gadd went to my high school. And, and then, you know, connected the whole thing. Yeah. So going through your discography, his name is Steve Schultz. He's a big, big Beatles fan. And he goes, hey, did you know that that Tony played on two Beatles solo albums? Like, wow, that's incredible. <laughs> he was curious. When you're in the studio with John Lennon, does he tell you how to play bass? Or does he go, you're good. You do your own thing. His first words to me were, they tell me you're good, just don't play too many notes. And I laughed at that because I, A, I was so comfortable being with an in-your-face New Yorker kind of, kind of attitude that I'm used to. And B, he didn't know it, but I actually don't play too many notes. I think I'm pretty on the sparse side. Because somebody told him I was a good player, he was thinking, oh, he must be one of those fast guys and I don't want him ruining my music. And that's the last thing I want to do. So that was the end of the discussion. He heard what I played. He liked it. I could tell he liked it because some of the parts he he said he liked some of it and other parts he doubled. He had other instruments, double them after I was gone. So it was a very uh, uh, wonderful experience, of course. And um, through it, I felt like I wasn't in awe of John. Like I wasn't nervous and shaking like, oh, my God, I'm in, in the studio with John Lennon. But, but I, I was thrilled to be around him. But musically, I felt, it, I almost laughed when he would pick up the guitar and play a new song of his, a John Lennon song. Uh, I thought, well, 
playing this bass part, there's a, easily a thousand or maybe 10,000 bass players who could do it pretty darn well. How lucky am I to be the one that's here in the studio and, and you know, just enjoying that fact and, and just playing the bass part that may be not too different than anybody would have played and uh, enjoying the moment. And it was great. It was too short. I wish it had been longer. The sessions themselves were about two weeks and there was a talk of doing a world tour afterwards. It never happened, sadly. And Tragically. you continued working with Yoko after that. So obviously you were in his good graces and her good graces. Yeah, well, it, it wasn't hard to go back. Musically, it was, it was pretty tricky to go back and forth because she couldn't play the song and sing it the way he could. Uh, but, but, you know, I respect them both and, and did my best with both. Do you miss anything about living in Rochester? I ask that because I'm finding more and more people who make it in entertainment are from there. And the answer is usually, I miss the people. I miss uh, Nick Tahoe's, but otherwise, <laughs> and, and House of Guitars. Otherwise, no. Uh, I, liked, I liked the city. I lived there for only six years and I uh, have visited many times. And I have a lot of friends, almost family kind of friends. And uh, so I like going back there. I never disliked the city at all. And, uh, but the, the players from there were great. And I had a lot of my musical education, although I went there to go to classical music school, the Eastman School of Music. My uh, musical education was mostly in jazz and then a little bit in rock. And it was a good education because there were so many really good players there. So I, I, I love that the players and I still do. And I love the scene, the musical scene, the way uh, on a Saturday night at 1 a.m. If you went to IHOP, you'd see all the bands in town after their gigs would join there. When I first moved from there to New York and started gradually, I started working. And I would meet players and I'd say, well, where's the place where everybody meets after the gigs in New York City? And they didn't know what I was talking about. The ones from smaller towns did. But I very much missed that when I went to New York. And, and now that I'm living in Kingston, New York, a much smaller city than New York City and smaller than Rochester, there's a little bit of that. Not so much, but uh, because my brother's here, we can certainly, at least the two of us can meet up after gigs and <laughs> invite other guys. More, more likely we meet for breakfast. But it is a wonderful thing I found in a, a city not so big to have a community of, of musicians that actually hangs out, not just at gigs, but when they're, when they have free time. I get the vibe that Kingston is following the Woodstock model where you have your, you know, 25 world touring musicians who mm -hmm. all kind of know each other and aren't competing when they're in Woodstock. And then when they're on the road, it's a different story. Well, well, it, it is very close to Woodstock. It's only down the road and both places have a, an inordinate number of musicians who live there and artists. And so it's a good artistic area, although m most of us, of course, have no local gigs to do. We just go elsewhere to tour and then we come home to be here. Got it. And another random question from a fan of yours named Grog Zeichner, longtime fan. He mentioned an album that you did with David Torn. And he's wondering, is that the only album that you did on the ECM label? That's the only that was called Cloud About Mercury, a really special and wild album. Really great. Uh, I don't remember doing any others on the ECM label. I've done others with David Torn. Uh, uh, Levin Torn White, for instance, we formed a, a, one of those project albums with three guys. Uh, I don't remember if I've done others with ECM. Probably not, or maybe I would remember it. But it was really special. David, I didn't know David that at that time, although we both lived in Woodstock. And, and he, he just had such an open mind about his music that he thought, well, what if I brought in Bill Bruford and Tony Levin to, from King Crimson and they played on my kind of jazz free weird jazz stuff what would that be like we only found out in the studio and it was really excellent excellent choice and a good example of an open-minded musician 
um, creating something that's quite a bit different than what he's done before. In terms of the trio albums, over the years, we've seen a lot of fantastic combinations. I remember there was one that was John Entwistle, Glenn Tipton from Judas Priest and Cozy Powell on drums. Was there ever an attempt at getting you into a metal trio with those kinds of performers? I have not been asked to do, I've been asked to do lots of uh, what I call projects. Project is almost like almost a band. It could become a band. But if it's a project, you don't devote the time into it. Usually don't have the time to put into it to become a band. Uh, so I've never been asked to, to join a metal one that I can recall. Well, two quick questions and then you're a free man. And the first one comes <laughs> out of nowhere. I was curious, were you ever close to working with David Lee Roth at any point in time? And I asked that because he seems to have liked a lot of people who were in the prog world. And I would have figured that after Billy Sheehan left his band, there was kind of a, hey, we need a guy who can really wow a lot of people. And you might have been on that short list. Nope, never did. Would have liked it. You know, I, when, when I uh, sometimes I'm asked, who, who would you like to have played with that you didn't get to? And really, like any musician, anybody who's good that I heard, especially if they're really good, that they're exciting. And boy, I wish I had played on that. You know, in, in a practical term, I don't, I don't uh, spend my time pining away because I didn't play with it, but but uh, yeah, I would have loved to play with him. Had had I been called and was I free, I would have done it for sure. And my musical life would have taken a turn. Who knows where? Who knows? Well, the last question, out of nowhere here, what's your favorite show on TV these days? Do you have a recommendation you could pass along? I have a very clear answer to that. Some, some questions I can't answer clearly. I don't watch TV at all. Wow. I haven't for years. If I'm Well, I'm not tempted anymore, but when I used to be tempted... I would just go up to the studio and play a little music or do or listen to music or do something musical or write or creative or read a book. So I'm not recommending that to everybody, but I don't even know. My wife watches TV and she tells me about some show. Shit's Creek. She tells me it's a good show. Great show. Haven't, Great show. But I don't watch. So that's a, that's a pathetic answer, but that's the truth. That's the truth. You're a student of your craft and you're pretty busy with the road. Totally get it. But yeah. thank you for your time and uh, hope to see your gig in Queens in the very near future, man. Thank you. And I appreciate your time also and the intelligence of your questions. Thank oh, you. too kind, Tony. Thank you very much. Have a great day. Take care. Outrocast. Thank you for doing this. Love the documentary. Thank when you. When I first saw that there was this documentary, I was thinking, what is there going to be that behind the music on VH1 didn't cover? And the reality is everything. Uh, you went very, very comprehensive. And one thing I couldn't figure out while I was watching it was how long you spent making it, because we do see a couple seconds of George Floyd related footage, which tells us it wasn't finished eight years ago. No, we, we knocked this out in about a year. Wow. Um, but lots of great archival. Um, our archival team is fantastic. And um, we were able to get Rick to tell his story in his own words. So that was an amazing part of putting this thing together. But we just had a phenomenal team of, of uh, archival and our editor, the lead editor, Jason Pollard, is amazing. I've worked with him several times. Um, all of our editors and our archival team and our producer, Steve Rebo, everyone's just fantastic. Yeah. In your case, I don't know how to define you because, yes, directed this movie. I don't know. Are you an author? Are you an editor, a publisher, musician, a writer's room guy? How do you like to be thought of in general, Sasha? 
uh, storyteller, um, whether I'm making music or making a film or writing something, I'm telling a story somehow. And uh, sometimes I use a guitar as a tool. Sometimes I use a camera, but it's all in an effort to tell a story. Got it. Another thing that I was thinking about while I was watching the movie is Rick definitely had some dark years where there was a lawsuit or two or three things that kind of kept him from making music per se. Is there a lot of footage from those dark years or is there absolutely nothing from say 1986 to 1992, just not just because of imprisonment and, and court stuff, was he not filmed much? Yeah, I mean, he says in the film that that was a very dark period where he was just at home a lot of the time doing drugs, not seeing people. So, um, yeah, it was it was a real, really dark and down time in his life. So I don't think there was much documentation. A lot of people who are artists, but also addicts would actually overfilm themselves in that period, thinking that they were doing the most creative stuff that they'd ever done. So I was curious if they found out in the years since that there actually were demos and there was footage in the midst of all that. I don't know about footage demos and stuff. I'm sure there's stuff that's gonna come soon now that this film is kind of reintroducing him to a new generation of folks. There, there is new music, I believe, on the way or new old music on the way. Oh, great, because that actually led to something else I was curious about. You talked about it in the film. You show without spoiling anything. He mentions coming out of prison that he'd written over 300 songs in there. And I remember hearing about that. I think it was a Rolling Stone article around the time of his release. He talked about all the music he wrote. And I think we've only seen one posthumous release. And he did a duet on a Tina Marie album that came out 10 years or so after his passing. So there is more coming from the estate? I believe so. And, and in terms of stuff that he's written, I mean, I'm sure there's plenty of stuff that was never recorded. Maybe it's just lyrics or melodies and things that they have in their possession. But I, I'm not fully aware of everything that they have. But I do know there's like a live recording that's going to be released oh. or re-released and a um, bunch of stuff that should be coming, coming out soon. Another thing I dig about the movie very unique animation you used uh, for the reenactment kind of scenes. Who was the team behind that or the person behind that? The person behind it is a, a gentleman named Hector Arias. And he's just, I've worked with him on most of my films. He's just a savant and a really talented one-man band who, you know, it, it kind of has this sort of 90s video game kind of feel to it. But yeah. I mean, Rick's life was almost like a video game. Uh, so I, I feel like it, it complements the film nicely. I remember shortly before Rick passed, Dave Chappelle notoriously had renegotiated his deal with Paramount, Viacom, Comedy Central, etc. And it was announced that he would be playing Rick James in a biopic of sorts. And obviously Dave Chappelle disappeared for a bit, then came back. Any idea if that biopic still may go? I haven't heard anything about that, but I know that the estate is, you know, there's a lot going on. So uh, I'm sure now that more people are introduced to him, a new generation of folks, because he was reintroduced to a new generation of people by way of the Chappelle show and not even as a musician or as a personality. Right. Um, so now people will also connect with his music or reconnect with his music. And, you know, the possibilities for something like that are more likely now, I would think. 
There are certain songs from Rick's catalog that we hear multiple times in the documentary. The man had a lot of hits. I'm curious if there's a deep cut or two from Rick's catalog that you're a huge fan of that you think more people should be up on that are as good as you and I and Cold-Blooded and Mary Jane and Super Freak, et cetera. I think in many ways, you and I is, you know, it doesn't have the same recognition as a Super Freak. Um, but it's just a, it's such a incredible song. It has so many different movements. It's so joyful, um, so upbeat, but so soulful at the same time. I don't know. I don't know how to really do that song justice, but I think it's a gateway to some of his lesser known albums and songs. And it really is the math of all these other bands that he was in leading up to it and sort of hearing what was going on at the time and creating this unique persona and sound. So to me, You and I is like the ultimate Rick James song that people should know if they don't. The film has so many people offering commentary, family, band members, celebrities that were fan, et cetera. Are there a lot of interviews that didn't get used? Is there a lot on the cutting room floor from production? Well, I, I tend to interview too many people. So, <laughs> but I also try to use everything I've got because if you were kind enough to sit with me, I would hate to not use your words. So, yeah, you know, there, there's something from everyone I believe that we've interviewed, but there's plenty of stuff that didn't make it. Another thing that I was super curious about is you wonderfully showcased his connections to Buffalo. When people think of the Buffalo music scene, they might think of Ani DeFranco or the metal band Every Time I Die or Billy Sheehan, who played with David Lee Roth and Mr. Big. They don't always first go to Rick James, even though he's probably the biggest musical export. I was wondering if you heard in the process of all your research and prep anything related to the Goo Goo Dolls knowing Rick James? Because they're not that many years off. The Goo Goo Dolls did start in the early 80s. Yeah, um, I don't know. I didn't. I, I mean, I know the Goo Goo Dolls are from Buffalo. I didn't hear anything about their connection to Rick James, but that's why um, Conway, who's a really popular rapper out of Buffalo, is in the film. Mm -hmm. Because I wanted to make the connection between Buffalo then and Buffalo now and how culturally and socially many things have not changed and how Rick's music was a reflection of his Buffalo and Conway's music is a reflection of his Buffalo and not much has changed. Sure. So great film. Yet again, I'm going to just keep showering you with compliments here. I could watch it again. There's not many documentaries I could watch a second time, but what's next for you? Um, I'm doing a film about um, Louis Armstrong at the moment. Mm. Um, and that's you know he's another really interesting uh, underrated underappreciated super important artist whose life intersected with culture and society in ways that a lot of artists haven't so I'm, I'm in the throes of that right now Interestingly, Louis Armstrong does get mentioned in this film when they're talking about how people didn't always like the music that came after them. And that was right. an interesting thing to me, without spoiling too much, that Rick did not, at the time, love the hip-hop that came. And it kind of makes sense when you think about it that he himself was the product of folk. Uh, also, I, I would assume Kiss was one of the influences for him to have Pyro in his live show. 
So kind of surprising that he liked everything before, but not everything after. Yeah, I mean, you know, that's that's an old story that is told over and over, but um, he wound up coming around to hip hop in the end. Um, it ripped hip hop, saved his career, gave yeah. him a new life. You know, Hammer gave him a new life. So he wound up making a song with Big Daddy Kane and Roxanne Chante, which is in the film. Yeah. And, um, you know, he can say what he wanted about hip hop, but it, he came around to it like most people did eventually. Outrocast.